1: so start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com people today. Well, hello everyone. Welcome back and welcome to Rory Sutherland's On Brand, brought to you by Alf Insight. In each episode, we'll be talking to the big names from the world of advertising, marketing, and media to dissect and debate success, ingenuity, and the future possibilities for our industry. And today, I'm joined by Kian Goltzari. This is something of a left-field invitation, but doubly interesting for precisely that reason. Over 10 years ago, Kian launched his global company, Sourcing with Kian, specializing in product development and sourcing, largely from China, Since then, he's visited over 500 factories and helped produce 2,500 products. He's also launched his own product, the Veltra Travel Backpack. So I'm delighted that he's here to tell us more. Well, Kian, welcome to the podcast. I understand you've lived in China now uh, for, what, the last 12 years or so. You first went there, what, 20 years ago or so, is that right?
2: So no, I went for the first time in 2010, so 12 years, right, 12 years ago, when I went there for the first time. Yeah, when I went there for the first time, it was supposed to be like a two-week business trip, and I ended up loving it. My my mind was blown first time I went into a factory, so I ended up staying there for three months, basically went back to Scotland, got my things, moved back to China, set up an office, and then lived there full-time for maybe like four or five years, and then I left China, but I kept going back every sort of three or four months just to develop new ranges and, and things like that. So I've been back and forth within China for the last like 12 years. But obviously, in the last two or three years, it's uh, it's, it's pretty, diff- for pretty challenging, yeah. I was going
1: to say. Yeah. And um, yeah. was it Shenzhen you went to first? What was the first city you visited?
2: Uh, so the first city uh, I flew into Guangzhou. I went to the Canton Fair, which is the largest import export exhibition in the world. So that really blew my mind as well. You've got over twenty six thousand exhibitors there. You've got so many different suppliers for all categories of products, and that was probably my best introduction to China because it wasn't online via Alibaba. It was meet and greet, build relationships, face face communication, feel the products, negotiate the prices, develop samples like the real way to develop products. But I feel that a lot of people in e commerce today are just kind of like, okay, see that product online right that one's three dollars 45 that one's three dollars 50 right i'll go for the cheaper one but there's not much interaction there's no building relationships and things like that so i was luckily chucked into it in the deep end and in the right way But I started off in Guangzhou, went to the Canton Fair, and then made my way up to Shanghai, which is where I lived. Because I feel Shanghai is the most, like, livable city in China, like, as a foreigner. Of course. I I don't think Shanghai is the real China. I call Shanghai, like, China light, because you can do everything you want to do there that you could do in the West, you could do it in China. Uh, If you want to go to the nicest Italian restaurant, it's there. If you want to join a basketball team, it's there. But as soon as you leave Shanghai, that's when you're in the real China. That's when, like, they don't speak much English, and you have to really understand a little bit to get by. So... Uh, Yeah, so I I lived in Shanghai, but because Shanghai is very central, I just used that as a base to get out to many different cities within China, either by high speed rail uh, or by plane. So, how's your Cantonese? Is it uh... so Cantonese terrible? Mandarin is okay. Okay, Uh, just speak a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So I, I can basically, um, you know, get directions for a taxi and order food at a restaurant.
1: I must say, um, it's very, very interesting because. As you say, you suspect that quite a lot of procurement from China is being done in a pretty low quality way, which is you just look at something online, you don't forge a relationship, uh, there isn't much conversation, that in a sense, what the internet has made possible, which is entirely impersonal transnational commerce, isn't necessarily a good thing. Is that fair?
2: Well, I, I would say there's amazing factories available online via alibaba.com, but there's also really bad ones. And I think that yeah. as long as you, if you don't have the right filtering process, then that's where you potentially have issues, get scammed and, and things like that. So the key is to align with the best manufacturer on alibaba.com. And this is why like, I started a YouTube channel because I was like, I need to basically my, use my 12 years of experience to educate people how to source correctly online because right now that's the only method that we've got. And, it, and it's funny, the first YouTube video I made was called like seven Alibaba sourcing hacks. And I, I was basically outlining, right? Because someone might go to Alibaba.com, type in a product, let's say blue light blocking glasses, right? And then they see all the glasses look the same. So there's some for $7 or some yeah. for $0.80 cent or some for $3.50. And someone's like, I don't know which one to order here because they all look the same. And you're sort of tempted to go for the cheaper one, right? But I, on Alibaba.com, you can search by... Prices, you uh, can search by manufacturers. I always say search by manufacturers because the goal is to align yourself with the best manufacturer. Once you find the best manufacturer, then you negotiate your price down, but don't be attracted to the cheaper prices first because that's where you'll get the junk suppliers. So you want to search by manufacturers first. You want to select, uh, and this is really important, like verified manufacturers, because that means that a third party like Intertech or SGS or TUV has gone in and verified that that information is correct. Like how many workers they have in their factory, their location, what machinery they have, what time the workers, uh, like who they supply, which markets, which customers, uh, North America, Western Europe, all that. And once we have that verified information, it's almost like you have eyes and ears inside the factory. Then we sort of hone in on like, you know, quality certificates. What audits do you have? What product certifications do you have? What patents do you have? And then, so there's a lot of very, very good information at our disposal, but you have to know how to search for that.
1: It, it strikes me that this profusion of products, very, very rapid imitation, and in many cases, extraordinary variation in quality, can potentially be a complete disaster because I notice increasingly, in the absence of brands, in the absence of established, known, recognizable brands, Let's say a new category comes along. I can think of two of them at the moment. Well, let's just choose one: the electric scooter. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, what would have happened in my childhood is someone would have brought out an electric scooter, and it would have been four years before they had an imitator. During which time, they had a chance to establish a bit of a virtual, bit of a virtual monopoly. It's called Schumpeterian rent. I think it's the idea that the first mover advantage gives you an effective monopoly uh, for for at least a reasonable time. And there would have been recognisable brand names on all the scooters so that if one scooter was particularly bad, people could avoid it. And if one scooter was particularly good, they could pay a premium for it, which is how capitalism is kind of supposed to work through that feedback loop. And now what we see, we saw it also with that thing, you know, those Ouija board things, which were like electric scooters only going sideways. Yeah. Okay. Um, people who would have bought one didn't actually buy one because the choice was so um absolutely confusing and because they knew there was a sizable risk of buying a piece of crap and nobody will buy into a category where there's just a random 10% chance of the thing being crap you know it's rather you know you wouldn't eat in a restaurant where there was a 10% chance of getting ill okay and then you have this extra problem which is uh, indeed what happened with those those duckboard things is one of them caught fire someone decided to charge it under their christmas tree so their kids could use it at full power on christmas morning And the charger caught fire, set fire to the tree, and half the house burnt down. And what happened then is because nobody knew which brand to avoid, they basically avoided the whole category. And it strikes me this can, if we're not careful, be a major obstacle. The absence of brands and the absence of manufacturer brand reputation can be a major obstacle to innovation. Because if Mm -hmm. within sort of three months of a good idea coming along, the market is flooded with indistinguishable products of uh, absolutely widely varying quality. You don't actually have an efficient market at all. You have basically a no-go zone. And it, it genuinely worries me. And so, I mean, the speed of imitation and this poor quality imitation problem, the Chinese government's never thought of trying to tackle it, have they?
2: no so the thing is that the the Chinese factories get the orders for it, regardless even if yeah. the market gets flooded so they're they're quite happy because they're exporting anyway, even if it's crap that ends up in a landfill they're they're they don't really care about that they don't really place a high importance on like you know protecting innovation and stuff like that, but as it happens, like the Chinese are becoming way more advance and develop themselves in terms of like developing products. They no longer rely on the West to be like, all right, give us your ideas and we'll make it. They're now sort of leading the way yeah. in product innovations as well. So I always like preach the importance of developing a good relationship with your factory because there's so many different benefits to that. But one of them is utilize their skills, utilize their product development skills to be like, Hey, what are you guys working on? You know, what's working for the Brazilian market? What's working for the Japanese market? Cause they export to all these other countries and then sort of apply the knowledge that what they're good at and apply it to your own market. But, but to your point as well, like, you know, there's a lot of, let's say, for tech products, which maybe fail quality standards and things like that. And it gives a whole category a bad reputation. And to that, I think branding is so important because it's so easy to flood the market. If you typed in an electronic scooter into Amazon.com right now, you could probably skip through five or eight pages yeah. and look at 50 or 100 different brands. And you're like, you don't know which one to choose. But... If you invest a lot into into like your branding and your sort of packaging and your community experience, and then you build up that trust and that loyalty, that's kind of like the first step. But then to ensure quality, you want to be you know having product certifications. So for every for any product that you bring out, there will be either legal standards that you must comply with, and there will be industry standards. So for example, to an electronic scooter, it will be it can charge for twelve hours without it blowing up the socket. But let's say for example you're doing a backpack there's not any legal requirements to import a backpack, but there will be industry standards such as pull the zip 10,000 times to make sure the zip doesn't fall yeah. off, or there might be waterproof standards on it If in Scotland, for example, where it rains every day. So we can, <laughs> you, you can, and you don't even have to know what these like, certificate standards are, but you can say to Intertek to say, hey, I'm importing this electronic scooter from China to the US. What are my legal requirements that I must comply with to sell this product? And then they'll tell you, right, you must comply with EN4072, and they will list out all the certificates, what they are, what's the price, and then you get the testing done but i think using the testing certificates as a marketing aspect to be like we comply with the highest standards here our certificates we comply with intertech da, 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 da. and i'm sure your marketing brain is probably firing off in terms of like how you can like demonstrate these sort of quality certificates but most commonly people just sort of list them on their amazon listing but i think Showing your quality certificates is one of the most important things.
1: It is a problem, though, you know, if you see the value of brands and manufacturer-owned brands, when you have a world where the manufacturer isn't really invested in customer satisfaction all that much. I and mean, that does seem to be a fundamentally problematic <laughs> um, kind yeah. of asymmetry, if you like.
2: Yeah. And, but, but I found as well that like to get the best results, you have to educate your manufacturer yeah. in terms of like your sales channels, because like, let's say, for example, you go out of, let's, let's say you sell on Amazon, right? And you go out of stock. Well, if you go out of stock, just Amazon will promote the next one. Your listing dies. And then when you go back into stock, you've kind of lost ranking. It'll be really hard for you to get back onto page one. If you don't get back onto page one, you're not really going to survive. No. And then therefore that, that listing is going to die. But why that's important for your manufacturer is that, if they allow you to go out of stock, meaning they delay your orders, they're actually losing a customer and they're losing an order as a result of it. So if you explain to them, hey, I sell on Amazon, I need to make sure I never go out of stock. Hey, uh, one-star reviews are so damaging that it will mean that you don't get any. So it, it, once you like educate them on who your customer is and what's important, wow. you can then tweak their service to, so that they can help you. And the other thing as well, like, let's say, for example, you supply a retailer a retailer might ask you for 90 days credit terms. Like if you supply like Tesco, Argos, whatever, they'll, they'll pay you 90 days after they receive the goods. But then imagine you have to pay your manufacturer a deposit on the goods, of right? Course. Then it takes two months for them to make it. Then you pay the final balance. Then you get paid by your customer three months later. <laughs> so when you pay that first deposit to your factory to when you get paid by your customers, five months. And a lot can happen in five months. And even let's say, for example, you know, the pound is pretty weak at the moment let's say if i'm a uk business i pay my manufacturer i convert to dollars pay my manufacturer in dollars i could lose a lot in that five months just on the exchange rate the, the lot the change in exchange rate could be more than the profit that i made from the product but to that point again if you educate your manufacturer look this is my customer i'm supplying tesco i'm supplying 100,000 units if you want that order for 100,000 units i also need credit terms from you so i need you to give me three months credit so i can supply these guys so no matter who your customer is whether it's tesco or selling on amazon or whatever whatever challenges you're faced with, as long as you have open dialogue, open communication with your supplier, you can sort of tweak. Uh, They can tweak to your requirements so you can get the best results. But that comes from communication and relationships.
1: I mean, this is the irony, which is economists thought the internet would get rid of information asymmetries between buyer and seller. And what it's in fact done is created increasingly new and absurd (laughs) asymmetries, which are in in some cases worse than the ones that existed before. I mean, an example would be, for example, Um, I know one large electrical manufacturer, which is forced to continue making juicers, which are actually five years old, alongside its new juicers. And the reason is that the old juicers obviously have 5,000 reviews on Amazon, and the new juicers have 500. Wow. And therefore, uh, you're more or less, you know, it's actually acting against innovation, in the sense that you have to continue selling old and, and you know superseded products just because their are rating's so high. Well, this seems a kind of crazy world in many ways. But one thing you do recommend is don't do that anonymous Alibaba only exchange. Actually establish a relationship with someone and get to know yeah, each absolutely. other as people. And presumably, once they understand the promise of repeat business, the game fundamentally changes, doesn't it? There's a fundamental difference between one-shot capitalism and repeat capitalism.
2: Uh, absolutely. And, and the thing is, you can use Alibaba.com to find your manufacturer. But once we found them, that's the door open for you to now develop that relationship. So, And a lot of people ask, well, how do I develop a relationship if I'm just sitting here in California and I need to order online? Well, you know, you, you start through messaging on Alibaba.com. But then in China, a lot of people use this app called WeChat. Mm-hmm. WeChat is basically their whatsapp their facebook messenger stuff like that they live their lives off this right so i would say look get their get their wechat and when you're just hanging out on the weekend with your friends having a beer you're at a game whatever just send them photos Be like hey this is us we're up we're out for having beers on the weekend da, da, da. hope you can visit us one day we'll take you out what are you guys up to oh that's cool what are you having for dinner oh i've never seen that before oh that's interesting oh chinese new Year's coming up what are you doing on chinese new year and this like keep all the formal chat to email alibaba all that but the informal stuff build that up through wechat and then get it to a point where now you can sort of text them on a friendly basis anytime you want but wechat has also got video calls right so let's say for example you've got an order leaving the factory on the 1st of april you can message them on the 20th of march on a video call be like hey do you mind taking your phone down to the factory floor real quick i would love to see the finished goods or oh the inspectors are in there to check the goods can you just take me down in the well? i'd love to see what they're like or now you have eyes and ears inside the factory because we've started a relationship and now you have constant communication with them so That's always super important. And that's one of the biggest advantages that a lot of people neglect because I think people are also scared to build relationships with Chinese factories as well because you're kind of going into the unknown, right? It can be quite scary to go online, order something from another part of the world that you've never been to before. But at the end of the day, they're some of the nicest people I've ever met. Like people like to buy from people. They love having foreign customers from all over the world. So really like you're leaving so much leverage on the table by not just opening and starting and building that relationship.
1: There's a a wonderful Chinese proverb, in fact, if you find it difficult to smile, do not open a shop. And actually, (laughs) keeping the whole thing personal and warm uh, is, you know, there's this weird, I think, idea of efficiency that's taken hold, which somehow holds that impersonal, you know, kind of procurement driven numerical transactions are somehow better. And there are cases where they are, you know, I mean, you know, there there are patently cases where business relationships have got in the way of good business. But at the same time, I think this this kind of cold, impersonal commerce isn't really where the future lies. I think it's a bit of I think it's a bit of a tech fantasy, actually. Uh, promulgated mm-hmm. by people who, let's face it, you know, the whole tech universe hasn't been built by the world's most sociable people by <laughs> large. Um, but one interesting case I've noticed, so you work with the Ministry of Defence, you work with the Olympics, I think you've worked with the United Nations, the NBA, and um, mm-hmm. uh, you have also worked with Amazon, which is fascinating because we conventionally think that, you know, no one has anything to teach Amazon. Certainly Amazon think that. Um, but um, uh, one interesting thing I noticed Amazon did is they actually discovered manufacturers which were unusually good and created brands like, for example, Anchor. Which, if I, it's probably a n k e r is probably not the name you would have chosen if you spoke British English. I think it's fair to say, but um, uh, but nonetheless, you know, the the creation of a few of those Amazon brands in things like cables, portable chargers, where you can charge a price premium for the name. Um, I think what happened is it it, it came about because Amazon realised that um, uh, you know some of these products were actually being made to a a, a quality that was actually wasted on the consumer when they were simply described as Pyeongyo 209463. Yeah, and yeah. Um, it's rather interesting that Amazon has effectively created its... I don't think many people know that Anchor is an Amazon brand, um, but it's mm. interesting that Amazon is actually doing that.
2: Well, what's fascinating as well... So Amazon's enabled a lot of private label sellers to start their own business, start their own brand, order from China. But the scary thing about Amazon is they have access to all that data, right? So they can see which products and brands are selling very, very well. And then they can decide which private label brand that they want to sort of start and develop themselves. And to your point, if they have a name like Anchor, no one really knows that this is Amazon amazon own brand but they're developing a lot of brands based on the products which are selling the best but then the other thing is i think they got in trouble by the government um a little while ago about this but they can also manipulate the listings to put their brand right to the top so therefore they're benefiting their brands are benefiting from all the traffic and they've sort of used the data of other sellers to be like right this is what's working really well right these were the negative reviews right let's improve that let's create this brand and let's chuck it to the top of amazon.com where we have so much traffic so that's where you have to be a little bit careful. And as well. it's,
1: I think it's a tragic case because I think it's a case where the individual within Amazon or Google has his own narrow set of incentives and often pursues those actually not to the interest of the wider brand. And two cases, I'd say, you know, I found it extraordinary. I mean, I, I, you know, I don't like criticizing Google and Amazon because I think you know, to an extraordinary degree and an unbelievable scale, they do an incredibly good job. Okay. Mm -hmm. But there are a few anomalies. One of them would be um, that Google will, you know, when it started effectively charging for top listings, not sidebar. And I I ended up I I was I had COVID at the time and I needed to get this weird equivalent of the Esther that gives you admission to Canada in about a month's time. And the, the top Google listing was basically a bit of a scam. I did get my listing, but I charged, I did get my kind of Esther thing, but I paid $40 for it rather than 14 You know, now Amazon, you know, sorry, Google shouldn't be doing that. And Amazon, I think, if you search for Samsung television, the first eight bloody listings should be a Samsung television. You know, yeah. you shouldn't try and slip in. It's also, I think, really bad merchandising because actually, I think it brings down the price premium they can charge. If you muddle up premium brands with a load of random brands that are two hundred dollars less, you're in danger. One, no, but people find it more difficult to pay the higher price, and two, in many cases, people just get confused and don't buy anything. And I, you know, I don't think I think Amazon's brilliant at everything. I don't think they're great at merchandising or at choice architecture at all. You know, they don't don't have hero products on the page. Everything is given that kind of equal billing, but with their own stuff, their own peculiar favoured stuff put at the top. Now, Um, retailers have always had that power, of course. I mean, retailers can always put the LG TVs at the front and the Samsungs at the back or whatever you want to do. I mean, it's worth noting also that when when people complain about products, conventional bricks and mortar retailers don't stock them anymore because they suffer some of the cost of returns. And I, I get the impression that, you know, we have a difficult position because Amazon does seem to be prepared to sell, you know, probably sell things of a quality it, it should have actually, you know, a conventional retailer would have would have scrapped ages ago. Mm-hmm. And so I mean, you what, what's so interesting about Amazon is that, you know, over time. It does teach you that there are still advantages to conventional commerce. You know, not least the fact that anything that John Lewis stocks is somewhere between really, really good and okay, whereas things you buy online can be anywhere between really good and shite. <laughs> and yeah. uh, you know that that downside variance is a bit of a problem. I think.
2: I, I think like a major advantage of utilizing Amazon's platform to sell your product is that if people, if someone doesn't know your brand, they trust that Amazon. Brand experience meaning if someone buys your product like if someone let's say for example a random product like a plant pot right you never heard this product before you try it out like you go in their Shopify store like you know what I'm not too sure about this Mm. I don't know if this is going to work out it's quite expensive it looks cool but I'm not sure what I'm actually going to receive but if you buy it on Amazon then. It's more like, well, I trust Amazon, the platform. I know I get next day delivery and I know if it's shite, I can return it the next day. No problem. Yes. And therefore you can benefit. You can get a lot of sales because people trust Amazon's platform. But then to your point, the brand experience is very muddled. And But then you can utilize their reviews. But then reviews can also be a little bit manipulated as well. So there's a lot of things that ebb and flow in terms of like you know whether a product will be successful on Amazon. But one thing that they're leaning more into is the brand experience. Meaning now you can have a bit, you can have a storefront, you can have a lot more images, you can display video now as well. So it is becoming a little bit more sophisticated. But I think that it's always worthwhile to list your product there to benefit from their uh, traffic because I, be- I i might be wrong but i believe 50% of online sales in america are made on amazon it could be more um and it, it the is, thing is yeah. we 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 also talked a little bit about you know like Chinese manufacturers but there's also a lot of Chinese sellers and they've noticed a big opportunity to sell on Amazon now Chinese sellers are very good at bringing in a cheap product but they're very very bad at branding so if you're good at branding that's where you can really excel and stand out because you might just see a cheap product from a random I actually did a I was interviewed by the New York Times about brand names and what they were saying was that, like, if you type in, like, winter gloves or walking poles or anything like that, yeah. you'll see probably 60% of them are Chinese brands and Chinese listings. And, like, the brand names are awful. It's like, you yeah. win. Like, random stuff like that. I mean, and-
1: the, 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 you win is actually comparatively good. <laughs> so,
2: yeah, 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 yeah.
1: I mean, it does yeah. at least contain two pronounceable, recognizable syllables, and, you know. But, I mean, yeah. it's, not, it's not unusual for ha- to have just more or less random confections of noise uh, making up the brand yeah. name i I've, I've, I've never understood that. Well, is it because if you've had years of communism, you don't really understand branding? I'm, I'm, I, I'm I, just kind of confused.
2: Yeah, you know, like I, I've seen some names that are called like Shanghai Profit, and it's like the absolute worst name to, to come yeah. up with. But 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 at the end of the day, I think there's consumers for everything. There are consumers for who just want the absolute cheapest product, and they don't care oh, yeah, where yeah. it's made. That's me um, sometimes.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah.
2: And like if, buying for anybody else
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean like depending on the product like let's say it is a plant pot if you're not brand sensitive then you don't really no. care you just want something that looks nice it's, just, it's a cheap price but it also now gives you an opportunity to differentiate from all the sellers if you really go in on the brand experience and you have the right name you have the right packaging you have the right messaging you have the right influencers backing up the product so there is a big opportunity there as well but you also have to be mindful and wary of the the, the Chinese sellers and then you know perceived value is very very important as well because you could it's so hard to differentiate on a listing because all you get is that one thumbnail that one image and in that one image how can you demonstrate because two products look exactly the same let's say it's a pair of like bluetooth headphones they will look exactly the same on the image but one will say like 35 dollars, and one will say 135 dollars. but you actually have to click on them to see what is the difference so yeah in amazon they say like the best products are the ones that win the click and you win the click by having the best thumbnail and the best title so that that's really really important.
1: Yeah, the people the people who have the worst time, um, and I've spoken to them, television brands, because they said when we're selling online, we're basically just selling black rectangles, and it's also impossible to see from the online thumbnail. You know, let's be honest. You know, an eighty five inch TV is, when you go into a store is pretty enormous and sensationally impressive, and online yeah. it's just another black rectangle, indistinguishable from a thirty four inch TV or whatever. And um, uh, that, you know, that that's a particularly painful category. Um, clothing is another interesting one, which I suppose Amazon has sort of failed to crack, except that, um, do, do you also deal with, you know, those people who go into, for example, uh, there's a particular online, uh, it's uh, called uh, Shein, isn't it? I think, often pronounced Shine, which is a huge um, a kind of Chinese clothing retailer which sells incredibly cheap clothes in the States.
2: Oh, no, I wasn't aware of them. No,
1: I think it's S-H-E-I-N, because Amazon's kind of failed at fashion, I suppose, possibly because you can't really sell fashion without some sort of merchandising effort. Um, Mm -hmm. And you can't sell $200 dresses in the presence of $15 dresses, really.
3: to find out if it's right for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.
1: Billy. you know i mean mm-hmm. if you look at fashion shops they tend to be sort of segmented by price band to an extent um, yeah you're
2: right I, I, and also i think with fashion as well people really care about the brand that they're wearing and the brand that they're yeah. showing and whereas like if you were say buying like a webcam you don't really care what the brand is but if it's something that you're wearing like as a top or a jacket it's yeah very for, for a lot of people it's very important what the brand is and if amazon can't demonstrate if they don't have those capabilities if they don't have that influence of a brand, then it, it's never going to be that successful. Even if it is Lululemon quality at ninety percent off the price, it of still course. won't be that successful.
1: No, and a, a huge amount of it in those categories. Uh, there's probably a lot of brand placebo effect anyway, which is you know it's Ralph Lauren. Actually, come to think of it, a T-shirt with Shanghai profit on it, I might actually buy. <laughs> it's sufficiently weird <laughs> enough. <laughs> But this is I mean, it it is a completely fascinating thing because it is, in a sense, it's capitalism trying to reinvent itself um, and Mm -hmm. sometimes succeeding magnificently and sometimes failing, (laughs) as is inevitable, Mm -hmm. I suppose. Um, But another huge problem, of course, is the the first bad review problem, which is if it so happens that the first person you sell to or the first three people you sell to are disproportionately grumpy, then you're doomed. You know, I suppose you, yeah. you launch under the, the, another brand name is the only solution.
2: Yeah, th- th- there are ways around that, though. I know that people can slightly manipulate reviews by having like friends and family purchase their products yeah. uh, as well. But, yeah. but but Amazon are quite clued on to this as well, though, because I, I think like back in the sort of early days, like, you know, 2015, 2016 of selling on Amazon, what would happen is someone would create loads of different accounts, they would buy their own product. And then, um, you know, they would manipulate and get like 20, 30 reviews very quickly. They would ask friends and family. But what Amazon started doing was they started tracking IP addresses of the purchases. Ah. And a lot of these purchases were coming from the same IP address. So they were like, all right, review manipulation, shut you down. So now it's, it's very, very hard to do stuff like that. And then people started doing like giveaways and rebates and all sorts of things. But you have to have some sort of strategy to rank on amazon because like there's so many sellers now that if you just organically launch a product and be like i hope i get some nice reviews and it's even against like terms of service to ask for a review like if you put an insert card in your product to be like hey uh, if you enjoyed this product please give us a five star review on amazon like they'll again give you a slap on the wrist pull your listing if you ask for anything so it's uh but they've now like you know integrated in their platform different ways where you can interact with the customers to ask for reviews but people were really manipulating that so you were getting dodgy products jumping right to the top of amazon going five star when the product wasn't really that good and then people were complaining so Uh, they had to fix that i don't think
1: amazon does a brilliant job of marketplace in asking me to review marketplace items because if you're a fairly regular buyer it's a spectacularly unappealing email where they ask for the rating which I think has Mm -hmm. the net result with me, which is I'd only leave a rating if I were either ecstatic or apoplectic. I don't think I'd ever Mm -hmm. leave a four, three, or two-star rating, to be honest. They they could make that easier.
2: Yeah, you know what's quite interesting as well? Because you always have to think about how you can work around a system, right? So essentially, Amazon's got two methods of delivery, FBA and FBM. FBA is fulfilled by Amazon, Prime next-day delivery it's in your warehouse, FBM fulfilled by Merchant. Merchant. You do it from your own warehouse now amazon doesn't give you any any of the data of the customer they don't give you their their name their email anything like that because they don't want you to remarket the customer which is bought from their platform however if you do fulfilled by merchant you do have the address of the customer now what some clever people did is let's say for example you're selling a travel bag in that you have the address of the customer they buy the travel bag so you know that okay if they have a travel bag they probably need a travel padlock like a little tsa lock which costs you know 90 cent from a factory in china so if you're ordering a 1,000 backpacks, I'd also order a 1,000 travel locks. And then you send the bag out to the customer. One week later, you have a nice little handwritten note that says, hey, uh, I know you're interested in traveling because you recently purchased this travel backpack. I would like to send you this free gift of a TSA padlock for your next adventure. And then the customer gets that, and they're like, wow, what an experience. I just got a free gift. And now, even though that cost you 90 cents from a factory, the perceived value of that is maybe 20 pounds because that's how much it would cost you of to course. buy that you know, at a travel shop. And then now that brand loyalty is created and they're way more inclined. And in that, with that lock, you could say, hey, if you're enjoying the bag, please leave a review for us on Amazon. And in that way you can add value to the customer, give them a nice little gift and also build that relationship, build that community and also get a five-star review as well. So there's weird little things like that you can do to really sort of enhance the customer experience.
1: I've got to ask this question, given your experience of Chinese factories, what's your take on the working conditions?
2: You know what? I, I, I think it's absolutely great. And and I'm glad you asked this because I think there's like a lot of negative perceptions about yeah. working conditions in China. And I can tell you, like in the 12 years that I've been there, visited over 500 factories. I've probably maybe seen like one or two factories which are below standard, which have maybe got like child labor, something like that. But like there's this perception of like, oh, my goods are made in a Chinese sweatshop. And whenever someone sees a product like made in China, they have like negative perceptions and connotations but what china actually has is a very skilled labor force at scale right and it's like no other country in the world has that the there's a lot of audits now you know um mm. if you supply disney you have to do a disney audit if you supply walmart you have to do walmart audit i was a board member on sedex which empowers global supply chains and they do factory audits when i supplied the olympics every manufacturer that i worked with I had to Provide a third party uh, certificate. And these are things that you can't manipulate either. Like, their third parties go in, they, they go in to check the books. What time do workers uh, go into the factory? What time do they leave? What are their working conditions like? There's pictures. If there's dormitories, what are the dormitories like? If there's a canteen, what's the food like? Everything. Are there enough fire extinguishers? Are there enough lighting? It's like going into, like, you know, essentially. But one thing is they work very hard. So they do work six days a week, sometimes yeah. seven days a week. And, and when they get their main holiday is Chinese New Year. So the. But China actually has a really big problem right now because they have an aging workforce. And these factories used to be located at the port cities, so on the coast, right? But as these big cities develop, like your Shanghais and all that, and even smaller cities that we've never even heard of before, like Xiamen, Ningbo, Mm -hmm. Fuzhou, Suzhou, these are all becoming very big cities of 25 million people. And what's happened is that these used to be the labor force that would go into the factory. But because of this growth in middle class, you now have uh, Pizza Hut, Starbucks, KFCs, nightclubs, all that opening up. And now the workers which normally go into a factory are like, why the hell would I work in a factory working so hard seven days a week when I can just work in Starbucks and play on my phone and have a chat to people all day, right? So now the factory to to attract factory bosses are saying to attract people to into factory now I have to pay them double what someone in Starbucks gets paid and the factories are moving more and more rural, more inland to the countryside, oh. right? So I used to get on a plane going to Shanghai or wherever I'll be in a factory in a matter of thirty minutes. Now I get on a plane to Shanghai, I have to go on a high speed rail for four hours to go to the countryside to then get to the factory. So the the working conditions are are great. They get paid very well. They're a very, very skilled workforce, but there's a big challenge in the workforce that the labor cost is constantly going up because of the other jobs which are available but as a result of that labor cost going up so will our product costs so that's going to put a lot of challenges on china being the place to manufacture our goods because a lot of brands put a lot of pressure on chinese factories like i need a better price i need a cheaper price but then as a result the workforce and the raw material cost labor costs exchange rate so many different things work against us that put the product cost up but there's not another country which has really stepped up yet to take the realm from China, which is where we're actually going to face a bit of a challenge here because, you know, the U S is such a consumer country, a consumer society. They like to buy a lot of stuff that they don't need. Uh, no offense yeah. if anyone's listening. From the no, US, no, no, they, they, but, they have um, a, One, one, one very banal
1: reason for this is they have very big houses.
2: Yeah. 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 So, but, but, so, but there's a challenge, but then like a lot of people ask me, you know, should I be buying from other countries in the world as well? And like, yeah, you should have a, you should do your research and see like, all right, what other countries can I buy from? But the challenge is that like you, a lot of people ask for, like, okay, I'm buying from China. And during COVID when they had lockdowns and stuff like that, like, right, I can't get my supply. Where, where do I go now? And I always say, start with a country that specializes in the raw material of your product. So oh. for example, in, in India is very good for wood, cotton, canvas, handcraft, all that sort of stuff. So if you've got a nice little wood table or something like that, you can go to India. But if you're doing... Bluetooth microphones don't go to India because they don't specialize in that product. So you're you're not going to get a, a factory which specializes in that certain product. And then on top of that as well, check the lead times of those countries because you might be getting 10,000 units a month manufactured in China because they have that skilled and yeah. scalable workforce. But you might go to find a factory in let's say uh, Bangladesh or Turkey, but they might say oh, our output is only 2,000 units per month. So now you can't fulfill your, your mm-hmm. demand. On top of that as well, we get so much uh, visibility of and transparency when working with Chinese factories because of all these third-party audits and factory reports that are available at our disposal. But now, if you start sourcing from Mexico, right, at least if you buy from Alibaba.com, you have trade assurance, meaning your payment is protected. So if you ask for blue light blocking glasses with a red lens, but you get a blue lens, Alibaba will just refund you because the communication is in the platform. And that's not what you received. But if you go to a factory in Mexico and you're like, right, I want these blankets with a cat on it, but you get a blanket with a dog on it, like... How are you going to go to mexico and get a refund from that factory right so your, your payment protection is very important and then uh import duties is something really important as well right so trump put on a lot of tariffs of chinese goods and, and things like that and some of them are coming down uh some of them some of the duties are absolutely fine but you can also look at sourcing from other countries based on what import duties play in your favor so for example uh when i had my business in the uk in scotland we were doing a lot of clothing, right? But we were buying clothing from China, which was 12, 12% import duty, but we also bought clothing and t-shirts from India, which was 0% duty. So if the product of the cotton t-shirt is the exact same from China and India, I'm getting it for 12% cheaper because I'm not paying any import duty because we're part of the Commonwealth. So you can also just look at the HTS code website to see what are the import duties from other countries and see where you can make a saving just from sourcing it from other countries as well. So, Yeah, we could talk about that for hours.
1: This is very, very, uh, this is fascinating. So I've got got to ask how the backpack's doing.
2: Oh, yeah, interesting, right? So in in 2018, I was like, right, I want to put my two superpowers to, uh, I want to combine them, right? So obviously product development, sourcing, manufacturing is my one passion, travel is the other, right? Backpacks is actually my favorite product to develop because could be ironically because the first factory I ever went into was a backpack factory and it literally blew my mind and I say that because when I thought of a backpack before I thought about it as one product in a store on a shelf but when I went into a factory I saw it in 30 different pieces I saw the shoulder straps the foam that goes in the shoulder straps the webbing the buckles the zippers the pulling uh, the pullers the inside lining the waterproof coating loads of different things and now when I think of a backpack, I think about it almost in like 3D. If I've got a $15 product, i want to make it a $12 product. I've got 30 different places I can go to in my mind. And then that really just, that experience really made me very passionate about product development and visiting factories and understanding how products are made. Anyway, backpack's my favorite product. So I was like, right, 2017, 2018, I was like, I want to make the world's best travel backpack. And I was thinking, right, what are the problems with current travel backpacks? Because I believe that the best products in the world are the ones that solve problems. And then I was thinking, you know, people can't – People, what do do people like to do when they're traveling? They like to watch movies on the plane, right? So you put your iPhone on a tray table, put a hoodie underneath it, it keeps slipping off. So I developed this little little clip. Yeah, I just developed this little clip, which was like the super puller of the backpack. You unclip it, it turns into an L-shaped kickstand, and now you have this little kickstand, which is a support for your iPhone, right? and that feature that costs like 25 cent but the perceived value of that feature is now i can watch movies on the go and it yeah. was just and then so i did like maybe 30 different things like that um everything like rfid pockets for your credit cards passports and then like you know in the carry on backpack size it was like dirty and clean laundry i made two different pouches because you always want to separate what's clean and what's dirty loads of different things like this right and it took a year on it but and I was going to develop it and launch it through crowdfunding through Kickstarter and Indiegogo. And I had this whole video planned out where, um, I, I basically rec- went into, um, you know, where cabin crew get trained, these like little fake yes. planes and stuff, went went to a fake plane, like filmed all my features, contacted Skydive Dubai, gave them a copy of the bag, told them to wear what I was wearing on the plane. They were going to jump out the plane with the bag. I was going to be in the desert, catch the bag, deliver it to the first customer. So it looked like I just jumped out of the plane while I was demonstrating the features. All, it's like, it was wild uh, what I had planned for this. But then I was ready to launch in April 2020. Ah. Boom, March. Boom. And then I was like, oh, shit. And, um, what happened was basically I, I just tested it. I had a Facebook group with like maybe a few thousand people, which are interested in buying the bag. And I started talking about travel bag features and everyone's like, Oh, go to hell. There's a pandemic. Do you not know like how insensitive you're launching a travel product in this time? I'm like, Oh wow. Like I, I can't do this right now. So I basically had to put it on the back burner and then everything's ready to go. Like I've made the stock. And then now I can sort of see like travel starting to pick back up. So I, ha- I haven't actually launched it yet. So it's, um, I've, I've literally just shipped it from China and now I think I'm going to launch it in the next like sort of two or three months. Um, so yeah, it's... Um, it's what, what would it be called? Do give a plug on the podcast because I'll, I'll definitely be
1: buying one. I, I, the one great backpack innovation I heard of was a very clever one, which surmised that the reason people on the subway and the tube were a bit rude with backpacks was partly that they were paranoid about their valuables being stolen. So they created a backpack where the zippable compartment for your laptop was actually against your back and couldn't be reached with mm-hmm. the backpack on,
2: which I thought was quite clever. And I also made like um, an electronics pouch, uh, packing cubes for dirt and clean laundry and um, all, all all these different compartments uh, for the bag. And they also fit perfectly within the bag, all the accessories together. But the, the 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 brand is called Veltra, V-E-L-T-R-A. And I just did a play on words with travel. So I took T-R-A, T-R-A-V-E-L and I just swapped them around. So Veltra is travel. And... um. Uh, essentially, it's it's not available yet. It'll probably be like two or three months. Uh, but the website is VeltraWorld.com. I just need to um, redevelop the website, but it's um. We're on Instagram as well, uh, vl Veltra just at Veltra. Um, so if anyone's interested, it will be available soon. But I basically I am going to launch it in the next couple of months. But I think I think it's going to be awesome.
1: Where's the best place to discover? Because as you quite rightly said, I mean, I think I think the decision to outsource manufacturing by certain Western countries has been Mm -hmm. a short-term, medium-term work of genius, but a long-term risk because actually so much innovation really happens from the bottom up. The standard Mm -hmm. narrative is you have people in California design things, people in China do their bidding. In fact, so much innovation can actually come from the manufacturing end and from the people Mm -hmm. who are just intimately involved with how to make something and how to put things together that I think it's likely that in many cases these businesses have kind of handed over their, their, you know, their, their kind of technological leadership. Uh, again, it's going to be a slow, you know, a slow process. But I think it's already happening. Is there a place to go if you want to see the most extraordinary things? I know in electric cars, the Chinese are doing amazing things. They're doing some obviously high speed rail is another one. What are the other things, and where would you go to find them?
2: So I've always been a big believer of like you know the best stuff you can kind of see is in the factory itself yeah. because you know you don't know want to go see like Canton fairs and stuff like that. They actually have like their new innovations the best products, but they're not out in display. They kind of keep them on the back ah. because they want to see like who are the serious customers because their competition have a booth right next to them so they don't want their competition to see what they're working on and also there's a lot of customers that they don't necessarily work with but we'll talk to them but then they have their own suppliers that they work with but going back to relationships if you build a, a good enough relationship with your manufacturer and you ask them you know what have you guys been working on then they kind of bring those products at the back to like hey by the way this is something we've been working on for two years and uh, this has never been done before this new uh, like ah. do you want a sample do you want to try it out so but again like that trust factor uh has to be there uh, in order to to do that. But it, really just like going into a factory would open up your eyes and ears like massively in terms of what, what they're capable of. And then that can stem good ideas for yourself as well. And if you aren't able to get into a factory, I always recommend like deconstructing a product as well. So you might, whatever category of product that you're into, let's see, even if it was a backpack, you can cut it apart to see like, right, what's the foam inside the shoulder straps? Can I improve that? And um, you can learn a lot about a product by going into retail stores as well because a lot of people just go online right and they just go into amazon and they read negative reviews and stuff like that but you know if you go into a retail store that specializes in that product well the guy who works in a retail store has been selling these products for the last yeah. like five years He's been talking to customers every single day and if you go into a retail store and be like hey by the way i'm interested in buying this you know this tv or this like you know like um, mini disc set or whatever it may be um what, what, what's the main things you get returns for or like what, what are the things yeah. that customers like most about this product and really pick their brain. That's where you can get a lot of really good product knowledge. Uh, and then also by going into the retail stores as well, you can touch and feel the packaging and see like how that packaging experiences. And packaging is also a really important thing to, because packaging is part of the product as well. Yeah. And, the, depending on where you're selling if you're selling into a retail store then the packaging has to catch your eye it has to catch your attention it has to be stackable it has to basically when you're walking past on the shelf like oh what's that but if you're just selling online people just go for like a little brown box or a poly bag because they've already sold the product but then again going back to that branding and core values yeah packaging, you've got it exactly
0: your,
2: your first touch point with that brand so you're creating that experience so how you package the product is very, very important, and there's also innovations within packaging. Like, can the packaging be a feature of the product? So, for example, if I'm buying a beach towel. I don't want it wrapped in like a in a plastic bag, but maybe if I get in a mesh pouch, that's how my product is delivered. But I can use that mesh pouch to take it to the beach to roll up. Of course, my towel. So, um, and then obviously, there's a lot of like sustainable materials and stuff like that we can use as well, so it it is wild the amount of and and again, going into the factory and being able to see how many different touch points you have where you can actually improve something and create more value for your customer, which then creates brand loyalty and then for them to purchase more product from your from your brand uh, is absolutely insane
1: this is this is absolutely fantastic one one thing I must ask from the marketers listening um is there a good solution for prototyping? So obviously, if I've decided this product is great or I've designed it, but initially I'll want a prototype where it's hugely expensive to produce goods in small quantities. And this is where just, you know, from my own experience, we've fallen foul a couple of times. We wanted to produce a prototype of a thing for Unilever, actually. It was kind of of dosing, dispensing device. And um, we fell foul of this. Um, What's your tip there? Can sure. you can you get this done as a kind of a bit of a favor on the promise of huge subsequent orders, or do they not take the risk?
2: First of all, whenever you're manufacturing a new product and also for a new supplier, I would never suggest just jumping in and placing a massive order for like no. fifty thousand units. So I always say to my manufacturers, hey, the first order is always going to be a trial order. Yes. and the trial order is to make sure that you manufacture the goods to a certain standard, that you ship on time, that you pass a pre shipment inspection, that you the goods get safely. Uh, through US customs or UK customs that we don't get many negative Um, reviews that don't get many returns and then if you pass that trial order then we're going to come back and place a much larger order so the trial order is like you're dangling the carrot to be like and suppliers understand that and they're willing to do like the first order at a break even or even at a loss to acquire the customer because they're not thinking about how much money am I going to make from this order they're thinking about how much money am I going to make from this customer over the next three five ten years so if you can state your leverage if you can say look we are Unilever or even if you're an absolute beginner you can say we work the biggest influencers this is someone of three or four million followers that are going to promote our product as long as you state this is why you should work with me or if you're an amazon seller you can be like look these are the two other brands we've launched on amazon these are our monthly sales this is what we can potentially do together in the long term if this trial order goes smooth then that way you're going to get the best but then also you don't want a very expensive price as a result of placing that smaller order so you have to explain it in a way that hey if you give us the best price for what we would normally order but just for this trial order then we can hit the market at the right price that we can gain traction and we can come back and place a much bigger order. So that is a very important aspect to mention trial order. And then also mention the keywords if we want to work together for the long term and we want to work in partnership together because the suppliers are not interested in the customers, which are just going to place one order review and then go to another one for a slightly cheaper price. But if you state from day one, because I've seen your verified information on Alibaba and I know you have these certificates, and I know you have these patents, and I know you have this machinery. This is why I've selected you. So we're qualifying them. And then they're like, okay, great. That's someone who's going to stick around. Right. Let, what do they need? Let's help them out. And then it goes more working in a partnership. What works for you is going to work for us. And then on top of that, in terms of the sample process, I would always recommend like doing this with three suppliers for the first time and then utilize, like we've even got a sample consolidation office in China. If anyone wants to use that, feel free to connect for me. But like, Rather than, let's say, for example, you're doing something expensive and, and, and heavy, let's say like a popcorn machine, right? You you don't want to send basically a popcorn machine from three different factories in China to an address in the UK. Each sample will probably cost you maybe 200 pounds, 300 pounds. And now you've spent 900 quid to get these three different samples. So what we do is I've got a sample consolidation office in China that will send the three samples from the three different factories to one office in China. They'll open it, check it, test it, report it. And if there's any faults with the product, then don't even import it, but or they will go back to the factory and say, Hey, remake this. And then now they'll bundle those three samples together and send one box. So you've only paid for like one shipping consignment, but you've got three samples from three different suppliers and you've verified that they're okay. But the good thing is that once you have these three samples, right, you're only going to order from one, but now what you've got is two backup suppliers. So something ever hits the fan like in six months time well now you've got two other suppliers that you've communicated with that you've got sample from and you've got their price so you can be like all right cool here's your order go for it but if something happened to your existing factory and you had to start that process from day one again it's going to be a long lead time so that whole trial order sample consolidation and getting the backup suppliers is really really important when you're trialing something uh, for the first time
1: that's absolutely fascinating i mean uh, the um Last question I think I have to ask is, what? how do you see uh, this whole business developing? Do you have any more innovations of your own in the pipeline? And, and how do you see the, the the wider business developing over the next sort of five to 10 years?
2: um well it's interesting like product development is my passion and i don't think product development is going away anywhere uh, whether it's sourced from china far east or any other country that that will always be there i like to get involved in projects that i'm passionate on like for example like the travel bag or like i get approached by a lot of different brands and retailers and licenses and like there's these like amazon aggregators now as well which buy up those different amazon brands and so like I I, I feel that there's always going to be innovation. E-commerce is always growing. Amazon as a platform is always going to be growing. So there's always going to be demand. It's like, you you know, when the whole like shipping crisis happened and like Mm -hmm. container prices went from like $2,000 to $20,000, all these people are like, oh, why me? Why is this happening? I'm so screwed. I went all in on this business. And I'm like, you know what? Like if it's happened to you, it's also happened to your competition. So it's Mm -hmm. now who can react best to it, which is going to get the best results. So again, going back to relationship, if you can get your manufacturer to absorb half the cost, if you started that, conversation of hey, we're in partnership together. Well now you say, look, the cost increase of a container's gone up eighteen thousand dollars, let's split the increase fifty fifty. So I'll contribute nine, you contribute nine, because if I can't afford it at this pro- at this price and then if I'm I not I don't gonna buy it, you you don't get the order. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Communication, so all of these things, like there's a lot of external factors that will always affect product development, supply chain, sourcing, all that sort of stuff, but it's who react best to it Uh, it will always be who are the ones which are going to get the best results. But I feel very lucky to find my passion at a young age. I went to China for the first time when I was 21. Uh, So it's like, I'm always going to be doing this. This is what I live and breathe and sleep. Beautiful thing to do.
1: Beautiful thing to do. And you went there effectively on a short trip and just fell in love with a... yeah. Your first factory visit was your absolute uh, uh, epiphany. I think it's absolutely fantastic. Well, Kian, it's been fascinating to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I've got to ask, by the way, what do you do with the NBA if it isn't confidential? Is it uh, merchandising material and merch? Yeah, Yeah, for the most part.
2: So so we had like the homeware category so we do like blankets, bedsheets, towels, pillows but again I want to bring like innovation to that I don't want to just put slap on like the LA Lakers logo, logo onto a pillow so we were doing like all the sort of retro uniforms we were doing like players name and face and signature we were doing like okay. the players body on a blanket so a kid goes to sleep dreaming that they are their favourite player and then we were sort of you know selling the you can be like this player rather than here's a blanket with a logo on it so and then we, we actually worked with quite a lot of players and they promoted the product as well but that was a lot of fun but The really challenging thing with that business was that, like, fans are they love the players, right? But I don't know if you follow the NBA much, but players are moving teams very, very quickly, right? They're getting traded every season. It's not like you know you have like Ronaldo at Real Madrid for like eight years, you can sell some products. Whereas like star players are moving like every single season, so you have a container. $50,000 $50,000 value is on water and while it's on water then they change teams and you're like okay shit oh, like oh, now the value shit. of that container has just dropped 90% so you have to be very very careful the timings of your orders uh, and things like that as well
1: oh my god they just aren't thinking are they when they trade for an extra 15 million dollars the, 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 they're not thinking of the inconvenience they cause well,
2: yeah they're not thinking about the licensees oh my goodness uh, and, and no I do yeah yeah
1: well it's been absolutely fantastic and once again thank you for joining me Um, That's all for this episode of On Brand. Uh, The podcast is brought to you by Alf Insight. And for more information on powering your business growth, visit their website at alfinsight.com. That's alfinsight.com. And so once again, uh, the series is produced and expertly edited by Ultimate Sound and Vision. Thank you, Rob. And to make sure you receive the next episode and to tweak our algorithm in our favor, uh, please do subscribe. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, then give us the mandatory like. Well, thank you for listening, and here's to next time. And, Kian, thank you very much indeed.
2: Thanks, Rory. Thanks for having me.
0: Normally,
3: being a little extra can be a bit much.